disasters and the music they make us listen to. And you're joining us for another Tragedy Tuesday. And this time, it's another special one. It's from our live show at the Ottawa Podcast Festival back in August. So a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. A lot of new listeners. Thanks for coming by. No mm-hmm. particular continuity per se, not a lot of in-jokes or anything, but we do reference previous episodes a lot, as you'll hear in the recording. So if you want to kind of be in the know, I recommend you go back and check those out. I recommend that too. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> I didn't introduce us, I don't think. I'm Peter, and you're my co-host, Lee. You're Peter, I'm Lee. If, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that I wanted to mention is our shop is up and running. We got some sweet merch in there. Yeah. You can get an awesome print we did with the local artist, the Disaster Crown. It looks super cool. Yeah. And we also have postcards that can be personalized to your own birthday. So if you send us, if you order one of those and you send us your birthday, then we'll send you a post, a handwritten postcard about a disaster that <laughs> took place on your special day. Yeah. To keep you happy not birthday. too happy. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, here's the recording from uh, today's Tragedy Tuesday, all about Apollo 1. So today, I'm going to go back to the 60s and talk about Apollo 1. It's a little bit topical because we all recently right. passed the anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. Good thing. But I'll get to that okay. in a minute. So I'm going to start with a little prologue. So the dust hadn't settled after the Second World War before the major superpowers, mainly the United States and Russia, turned their attention to space. Step one. Scoop up as many German scientists as possible. <laughs> so Russia did this. There's two different ways that they did this. So Russia did this in something that they called, and I'm going to mispronounce this for sure, okay. Operation Osovakiakim. No, no, I know that that's wrong, but I'm just going to push through. Sounds spot on to me. On the night of October 27th, 1946, the NKVD, which is a precursor to the KGB, okay. and the Soviet Army personnel kidnapped over 2,000 German scientists and their families. <laughs> Totaling 6,000 people. True KGB fashion. Right? (laughs) And they just kind of brought them back to the USSR and said, you work for us now, make the rockets go. Hey. Yeah. (laughs) USA did this a little bit differently, and you've probably heard of this one, and I'm not going to mispronounce this one. Uh This one was called Operation Paperclip. Yes, I have heard of it. Yeah, so this was more of a program. So between 1945 and 1959, the Americans recruited around 1,600 German scientists. Okay. Uh, and this was less of an assault, more of a slow trickle. Uh, but it's not a bad, yeah, you know, retirement plan. Retirement plan for war criminals. Hey, what'd you yeah. do between thirty-nine and four? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Just that's a blank on the resume. Just blow past it. Uh, but basically, the end result was the same. Now the USSR and the USA had a group of German scientists that work for them and make the rockets go. Uh, so depending, and this is funny, depending on which source you read about these two operations, you have different depictions. But for example, when you go through a lot of the U.S. literature, they talk about how German scientists emigrated to help these countries with, oh, did they? <laughs> with the space programs. And when you think about the Russian approach, I mean, it's not wrong. I guess technically they emigrated, but it's more like they were emigrating. They were emigrating. Yeah. <laughs> Not, it's not like, I hear Siberia is lovely this time of year. (laughs) And they disappeared for a while. Right. So uh, the reason that the German scientists were so appealing is that many worked on the V-2 rocket during the Second World War. Okay. So the V-2 rocket was used to bombard England at a distance from the shores of France. And the Germans got really good at it because they killed around 3,000 people and injured just over 6,500 in London throughout the course of the war using these V-2 rockets. Like the Blitz? Uh, this would have been like throughout the, throughout the course of the war, the whole war. Yeah. They just, okay, uh, okay. they spent the war getting really good at launching rockets in England. Mm. Yeah. And the prize acquisition, maybe if you haven't heard about paperclip, but it sounds like you have the prize acquisition of operation paperclip was Werner von Braun. 
Uh, or if you haven't heard that name, maybe this will ring a bell. His, his, his full name was Werner Magnus Maximilian Freiherr von Braun. Does that ring a bell? That's a lot of no? names. Yeah, well, <laughs> That's a lot Germans, of awesome names. You'll, you'll hear, because we have an episode coming up soon about the Hindenburg disaster, you'll hear that the Germans love, like, especially in the 1900s Germany, they loved their paragraph-long names. Uh-huh. And paragraphs of awesome names... Magnus, Maximilian, Maximilian. Freiherr. Yeah. Those are all on the shortlist for my son's name, actually. Nice. <laughs> nope. nope. So anyway, he was a German aerospace engineer, instrumental in the development of the V-2 rocket. Okay. Okay. So let's move on to the United States space program. Mm. So on July 29th, 1955, President Dwight D. Eisenhower announced the United States' intention to put an artificial satellite into orbit. And on October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union... Beat them to it with Sputnik 1. Ugh. Oh, this is the wrong slideshow. I'm just going to go back. Oh, no, I'm not going to go back. I sent it late last night, so I guess it was probably the wrong one that's loaded. Uh, look at this picture of a rocket. <laughs> so on... <laughs> the Soviet Union beat them, to, beat them to it with Sputnik 1. Okay. And the U.S. was like, son of a... Uh. Never, tell people you'll, never tell people your plans. Just no, it, right? That's anyway. someone one step ahead. But anyway, this essentially catalyzed the space race because the U.S. freaked out at the prospect of a Russian satellite circling overhead. Right. Um, and the USA wasn't going to help let this happen again. No. So on the morning of May 5th, 1961, Freedom 7 launched from Cape Canaveral, making its pilot, Alan Shepard, the second man in space following Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin on April 12th, less than one month earlier. Oh, come on. Right? Nice. And on top of that, Alan Shepard made it to space and back. Gagarin completed one orbit of the Earth. And I have a picture of him looking super <laughs> so smug. He just went, well, Alan Shepard went up and down. Yeah. And Yuri Gagarin went like the Did whole way. orbit. You know, like when you're learning how to ride a bicycle and like yeah. the neighbor kid is like riding like backwards, not using his hands, being like, look what I can do. Yes. Alan Shepard's like, I still made it to space. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> like wobbling around. Still did it. Still, still counts. Cut to president in his office. Mother! <laughs> right? <laughs> Twice now. Twice. So John F. Kennedy was sworn in as president of the United States in January 1961, and he was elected on a promise of missile and space su- superiority to the Soviet oh, Union. The race is on. Right? Yeah. And this... this the Garen thing happened while he was in office. So okay. he was as frustrated as anyone at being beaten into space by three weeks. Sure. In an address to Congress on May 25th, 1961, Kennedy announced his goal of, quote, landing a man on the moon by the end of this decade and returning him safely to the Earth. Reasonable. Reasonable goals. Sure. Good timeline. Less than 10 years. Perfect. For a little bit of context, we do this a lot on the podcast. We talk about we like to put things in a historical context just to give you some timelines. So the Wright brothers made the first ever powered flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina on December 17th, 1903. And then by 1969, spoiler, a human will have walked on the moon. So 66 years between powered flight and Neil Armstrong's boot on the face of the moon. <laughs> and I mean, and that flight was right. I mean, I mean, it, it set a precedent, but it was nothing right. <laughs> I think it was like I four seconds. Yeah. Like there was a, a photographer a there. A meter off the ground. You know, they like, they got off the ground for like four seconds. And like, you, you guys saw it, right? There's a picture. Like Done. Flew. Flight. Flight. We can fly now. <laughs> so, and actually just for a little bit more context. So 66 years before the first powered flight, Manifest Destiny, the idea that the United States were destined to expand from the east to the west coast, was still manifesting. Mm -hmm. So the USA wasn't the USA yet. 66 years before the first flight, and then 66 years later, they were on the moon. Okay. They go from not even a country 
and just just over 100 years later, landing on the moon. Big steps. Yeah, and 100 years isn't that long because we just passed the 100 year anniversary of the First World War. Yeah. So everything everything happened now. You got history, and then you have now. Now. So. <laughs> The United States had all these shiny German scientists working on ballistic missiles for the military, which is perfect because they thought, great, let's point these missiles straight up and put people on the front. <laughs> Same principle. Basically. <laughs> I mean, there's a little bit more to it, but that was, uh, that was where they were really. going with it. So <laughs> up to this point, NASA had been puttering around with Project Mercury and not to belittle Mercury and Gemini. They made it to space, but, you yes. know, they're, they're kind of like kicking the can. Kennedy redirected funding to the Apollo program the name of the U.S.'s effort to land on the moon to the tune of $25 billion, or mm. up over $150 billion in today's currency, and some tallies actually put it up to $288 billion. And those are big then, numbers that really... So that's today's money. Oh, yeah. So up to $288 billion of today's dollars. So I just did a little bit of math. So the total U.S. federal spending between 1961 and 73 was just over $2 trillion, and NASA's budget for the Apollo program was roughly 7% of total federal spending. Wow. In case you're curious... The 2019 budget for NASA was $21.5 billion, or half a percent of total budget spending. <laughs> so it was a different time, because right. I find it very hard to imagine any project now with a single goal receiving 10% of a federal budget right now. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, there's, there's good candidates. I'm thinking maybe climate change would be a good one. Sure. But, yeah. right? But spending money... Yeah, spend, but you need, like, a clear, like, they were worried about the... Russians going up. Uh, you need a spreading communism on the moon. That's so true. You, I you guess. Need to like I guess turning our Earth on that. into a scorched dust ball isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, though, and we can talk about this more later if you're interested. Maybe it'll come up again in the podcast. If we invested this kind of money in space exploration again, it would have a lot of benefits addressing climate change. But mm. that's a whole other. Yeah. So the plan, despite this massive cash influx, the early years of the Apollo program were still a scramble. And so were the mid-years, and so were the late years. <laughs> okay. And if we're not going to go deep into the Apollo program, because there's just so much to cover, but there's a great podcast, if you're interested in it, called 13 Minutes to the Moon by the BBC. It's about the 13 minutes from entering orbit to landing on the moon. It's, right. it's amazing. Okay. It'll, just, it'll teach you everything you ever wanted to know about the Apollo program. Okay. So check that out. We have no affiliation. Be nice, though. <laughs> Call we'll the get, BBC. We'll get there. Put, yeah. Take a note. Take a note. Call the BBC. <clears throat> so the first manned space flight of the command support module was scheduled for February 20th, 1967, which again, cutting it a little close, yeah. first time that this command module is going to enter space is two years before they're supposed to walk on the moon. It's the first best time. It's not homework if it's not done at the last minute. Right? No, exactly. So there are three astronauts scheduled to fly the mission, okay. which, would become which would come to be named Apollo 1. And I have a picture of them in my other slideshow, so just... Try to, try to put faces to these names. Because we talked about names before, got some names. <laughs> Virgil I. Gus Grissom. Nice. So he was a veteran of the Second World War and the Korean War. He was a U.S. Air Force test pilot, and we'll talk a little bit more about the test pilots, and a mechanical engineer. And he was the second American in space and the first astronaut to go into space twice. So okay. kind of a big deal. Bit of a veteran. Right. In many ways. Yeah. You just picture, I always picture people like that also mowing the lawn. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. like it's got to get done, right? He's <laughs> just like, Joe's. I was in space twice. Cool, cool, cool. It's still a lot of daddy lines out front. <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> nice. uh, Edward H. White, the second. Also solid the second. name. The second. You junior. don't get a lot of seconds anymore. They call him junior. I'm a junior. Probably not. I've got Are my you dad. a junior? I'm a junior. Junior. Right. Peter Zacker and Peter Zacker are junior. Nice. Yeah. 
got confusing at home. Yeah. Uh, so he was also a U.S. Ter- uh, U.S. Air Force test pilot and an aeronautical engineer, smart and daring. He, interesting tidbit here, he missed qualifying for the U.S. Olympic team uh, in the 400-meter hurdles by four-tenths of a second. Ooh, bummer. Eesh. But then he was the first American to walk in space. So. Right. Suck it. Didn't go to the Olympics, but I went to space. Went to space. Did you go to space? Yeah. yeah I did. Yeah. Nice medal. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, it's a nice shiny medal you got there. I was in space. <laughs> yep. That also wins a lot of arguments, too. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime he's in an argument, I was in space. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be an astronaut. So Roger B. and Roger B. Chaffee, two F's, two E's. He was an aeronautical engineer, communications officer for the Gemini missions, and his first space flight assignment was to Apollo 1. So three big deals. Yeah, I like the cuts of all their jibs so far. Good reference. Did you learn that from our episode on sailing around the world? Okay. Jib is a ship. It doesn't matter. Shut up. Just (laughs) listen to her. Okay. All three of them voiced concerns with the design of the command module. Okay. So particularly there were concerned, there was a lot of things and I'll go through, 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 through them, but they were particularly concerned with the abundance of flammable material like nylon and Velcro. <laughs> uh, and they weren't alone because several of the engineers on the team had similar concerns. Hmm. Some of the other concerns they had, the, deci- the decision was made to use a single gas atmosphere within the command module. So on earth, air is made up of roughly 80% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, and small percentages of other gases. To save weight on gases, they decided to use 100% oxygen within the uh, command module because they wouldn't have to carry Uh canisters and equipment for nitrogen and oxygen. Uh So weight saving was a primary driving force with the design throughout. For example, the material that they used on the lunar module eventually was so thin that it could be punctured with a pen. (laughs) <laughs> what? Yeah. So the layer separating the inside where all the astronauts are okay. from the endless void. <laughs> eh. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Well, yeah. if I know my sci-fi and, and movies in particular, all you really get is an annoying sucking when that happens. Right. So if yeah. you hold on tight enough. You'll be fine. You're good. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't worry about it. That, yeah. Safety, I can't, I've safety said procedure 100% was, oxygen yeah. and flammable material. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't fire love oxygen? Well... <laughs> You know the name of the podcast? Am I jumping ahead a little bit? A little bit. bit. I'll let you talk. So, there were other considerations for picking 100% uh, oxygen atmosphere, including the risk of nitrogen leaking into the spacesuit feeds and causing the astronauts to to pass out, which had happened in training exercises before. Um, And also, can a human safely breathe 100% oxygen? uh, uh, Sorry. Can a human safely breathe 100% oxygen atmosphere, you may ask, during a dry run three days ago? So atmospheric pressure on the surface of the Earth, no, because you'll get loopy and it's eventually toxic. Right. But when it's presented at a lower pressure as it would be when you're in space in the command module, yes. I'm glad I looked that up before That's we talked news, about this. Yeah. So final, final issue, or second final, but I'll skip to the last one later. The wiring wasn't up to par. So don't necessarily picture nests of frayed wires, but they definitely weren't following the standards set today. And if you're curious, you should look up the NASA standards for splicing and soldering. Uh, I made that mistake when I was trying to fix some electronics, and they are exacting standards, like to the millimeter and exactly how to tie things together. And certainly these standards weren't met. So not complete garbage, but they're on a two-year timeline, and they got to get it done. Let's push it through it. Wiring could have been better. Yeah, yeah. One of the earliest, and and here I've got a note, Uh, this was basically one of the earliest manifestations of a phenomenon known as Go Fever. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. It's not a fever about the game Go. 
which <laughs> I'm a dad now. I get those. Shut <laughs> up. So as basically it's a phenomenon where as the realization of a goal seemingly comes closer and closer, you get blind to potentially devastating faults <laughs> because you get to a point where you're like, well, we've come this far and we got to keep going. Yeah, yeah. This wiring doesn't, doesn't matter. We're yeah, going, we're, we're going, we're past that. NASA's notorious for doing this. And I'm not, NASA has had many more successes than failures, but their failures tend to be catastrophic and stay tuned because this isn't the last one that we're going to talk about <laughs> from their mistakes for the most part. <laughs> but every now and then you get a mission that's just got to go. And that's why it's called go fever. Right. So with the mission pressing forward, despite these red flags, Grissom, White and Chaffee presented Joseph Shi, which was the man responsible for overseeing the design and construction of the command module with a picture of the three of them praying around a model of the command module. <laughs> So they had some concerns. Yeah, I knew I liked these guys. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they had an, an inscription that says, it isn't that we don't trust you, Joe, but this time we've decided to go over your head. Which... Straight to the top. Right? <laughs> but I thought that was an interesting uh, demonstration of what it takes to thrive in survival situations. So uh, I, I said we'd mention test pilots again. There's a book. I'm sure you've either seen the movie or read the book, The Right Stuff. Uh, it's basically about these test pilots and how they would get recruited into the Mercury and Gemini and eventually Apollo programs. Okay. And it paints a clear picture of these pilots that are highly skilled, highly intelligent, and spend all of their downtime drinking and speeding in sports cars mm -hmm. because it's this rare combination of super fit, super smart, and willing to risk your life for right. a goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which might be driving a Grace car under fast. Pressure. Basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, so that's the pool that was recruited uh, from for this mission. Uh, and the other thing that I wanted to talk about, I'm reading a book right now called Deep Survival by uh, Lawrence Gonzalez. Okay. And it talks about uh, this kind of phenomenon in the context of fighter pilots landing. Uh, one of the things it talks about is pilots that land on aircraft carriers. And he talks about different coping mechanisms with things that could be potentially catastrophic. And for the most part, he mentions how the thing that distinguishes people that survive these kinds of catastrophic uh, situations from those that don't is people that have a sense of humor about what's happening. Right. So clearly, um, Grissom, uh, White, and Chaffee weren't taking this lightly, but they always had the capacity to laugh about yeah. either the absurdity of the situation, and we've had that come up. We've talked about catastrophes where all laugh you can do is laugh. before you cry. Exactly. Yeah. So, on 1 p.m. on January 27th, 1967, and you know once I start mentioning times, shit gets real. We're getting to the... <laughs> The event. So Grissom, Chaffee, and White set themselves up inside the command module for the first plugs out test. And that is pretty much what it sounds like. They basically pull the plugs out to make sure that the rocket can run on its internal power. Okay. And it's necessary to make sure that once they launch into space, they actually have power to power the mission. Sure. So immediately, basically, they start it and they stop it, the test. It was paused because Grissom reported smelling a foul odor inside his pressurized spacesuit. Immediately. Immediately. Oh, God. Right? Mm -hmm. And right there again, like, so, th so they didn't find a source, and the countdown resumed again at 3 p.m., so they spent two hours looking. Uh, okay. But again, remember the go fever. Yeah. Like, this is something that if there wasn't a time pressure, you smell something that shouldn't be there. Like, you see something that shouldn't be there, and you stop immediately. Call it a day. But they got to go, because they only have two gotta years to go. get to the moon. Yeah. Uh, and this comes up, this has come up in the podcast before, and it'll come up again. We're just, uh, we just released part one of an episode about a guy who tried sailing around the world and it didn't go super well. And same kind of thing. He gets to a point where disaster is clear, but he's committed to going. He's exactly. going. 
So, Who invested? Exactly. So as the countdown resumed, the hatch was installed. And this is the final piece of the puzzle. So there were three hatches. There was an inner hatch, which was like they could remove it and put it inside the cabin. There was an outer hatch, which, which could swing open. And then there was a hatch cover. Okay. And the outer hatch was the heat, uh, heat shield. And the outer one was the, uh, to protect against friction during takeoff right. with the air. <clears throat> one of the last communications from Grissom was eerily telling of the state of the Apollo program at the time. So following poor and worsening radio communications between the command module and mission control, Grissom said, how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between two or three buildings? Because all <laughs> basically static with indistinguishable voices. Fair enough. Yeah. So over, over four hours after stepping into the command module, the simulation was once again paused at 5.40 p.m. While they tried to fix the communication program. Okay. And they've been strapped in this literal sardine can. I've got a picture in the other... Right in the tip there, that's where they would be sitting. And it's like a tiny sardine tin can with l like no room to move okay. because they're saving so much on weight that they just throw everything else out. At around 6.30, the logs showed a momentary increase in what they called AC bus 2 voltage. And this is possibly indicative of a short circuit. Okay. So everything we plug into walls, we do a lot of sidebars, and I'm not... I'm not going to go too deep here, but just a little sidebar about AC. Lower sidebars. It, everything we plug into the wall is powered by alternating current. Yes. Uh, it's the cheapest way to transport electricity along power lines because uh, it lets you take an unusably high voltage, which is necessary to traverse long distances, and it can be tr transformed down to the 120 volts that we get in plugs. Right. D you can't do that with DC current. And the problem is, is that this assumes that the electricity stays in its lane or in its insulated wire. So if you have wires that are poorly insulated or poorly installed, and they're touching either each other or a conductor, you can get spikes in AC voltage. Right. Indicative of short Zap. Often the kind of short that can cause this kind of momentary increase in AC voltage, as the one observed on Apollo 1, also gives off heat and sparks. 100% oxygen. Great. <laughs> At 631.04.7. Okay. This has come up a few times because <laughs> the very first episode we did was about ancient Athens, and you get like ballparks on historical right. timelines. Maybe this year. Yeah, right. Now you're... When you talk about NASA, you get to the 10th of a second, Jeez. which is awesome. Okay. Terrible. Awesome. So Grissom exclaimed at 631.04.7, hey, fire. Hey, fire. I'm assuming that's how he said it. Mm -hmm. This was followed by a few seconds of scuffling, so him moving around. And then at 631.06.2, Chaffee yelled, we've got fire in the cockpit. Oh, God. Seven seconds later, I'm, I'm reporting a bad fire. I'm getting out. And then five seconds after that, the transmission cuts out over a cry of pain. So what happens when you introduce a massive increase in heat inside a sealed vessel? Do you remember chemistry? Uh, Spike in pressure. Yeah. The intensity of the fire burning through a pure oxygen atmosphere spiked the command module's pressure to 29 PSI, pounds per square inch, approximately twice Earth's standard atmospheric pressure. Yeah. The inner wall ruptured and gases and flames rushed out, filling two levels of the launch pad. So if, again, if you picture how you can't see how big that is, but is, is a lot of... A lot of gas and fumes. Yes. The rescue f is so thick, in fact, that the rescue crews couldn't get through the flames and thick smoke. Ugh. And there was a real fear because this was, the rocket was fueled during these tests. Yeah, okay. So, boom, potentially. Yeah, kaboom is the term? That, sorry, I forgot the ka. Good one, thanks. Mm. That's why you're here. The dropping pressure inside the command module allowed the flames to ignite the cabin in earnest. So you get that initial flash of an explosion, right. and then as it vents and there's more room to burn, it starts burning. Catches. 
Once the flames burned out, the command module was left filled with dark smoke and carbon monoxide. And maybe it's good that we don't have the slideshow because you'd be seeing a picture of it right now. And it's not great. So the cause of death for all three astronauts was determined to be cardiac arrest from inhalation of carbon monoxide. The bodies oh, were found with their... burn. They didn't... Well, well they, not, yes. that's, not, that's not what killed them. Right, 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 right. The bodies were found with their spacesuits melted and third degree burns. Uh. Grissom and White's bodies were found out of their seats, likely attempting to remove the inner hatch. Right. But the spike in pressure inside the command module made it impossible. So even if they could get it off, which I didn't mention, but the way that you installed the inner hatch at this phase of the program is that you basically bolted into place. So, so they had no chance. You get out of your seat and you start working on that first bolt <laughs> at seven seconds. But they were being crushed right? by pressure too. Yep. So even if you got the bolts off, that hatch wasn't coming off. Right. So the major causes of the accident appeared to be faulty wiring acting as an, igni as an igniter, the pure oxygen environment inside the command module, the hatch that couldn't be removed quickly enough to escape, <laughs> excessive combustible materials inside the command module, which even they were, everyone knew about that, and on top of it all, or perhaps most importantly, insufficient preparation of emergency procedures. Right. Because the, they couldn't get to the command module in large part because the breathers that they had couldn't deal with the thick smoke. They were made for toxic fumes, but they couldn't deal with fire necessarily. So as far as a rocket goes, mm -hmm. poor job. But for as far as a death trap. Yeah, yeah. Really a good plus. at death traps. Yeah, yeah. Like, that was perfect death trap. Yeah. Terrible rocket. Mm -hmm. So in the aftermath, uh, the Apollo 1 disaster nearly derailed the entire Apollo program. Yeah, no kidding. As, right, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of finger pointing among the contractors involved in the building of the command module and its components, but... Uh, as anybody who's dealt with multiple con uh, contractors on a project that goes wrong knows, you talk to them and nobody did anything, right? No. That wasn't my responsibility. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Nobody did anything and yet we built a rocket. How did that happen? <laughs> the NASA flight director, Gene Krantz, called a meeting of the mission control staff following the disaster. And he basically, I've got a couple quotes. We were too gung-ho about the schedule and we blocked out all of the problems we saw each day in our work. Every element of the program was in trouble and so were we. And he's basically describing go fever right wow. there. So, yeah. Well, points for honesty. Well, yeah. So the command module was completely redesigned and put together much more carefully. Uh-huh. Good first step. <laughs> but what I, what I appreciate is rather than sweeping this catastrophe under the rug, uh, they stuck with the name Apollo 1 for this first flight. Okay. Uh, instead of just saying like, okay. The next one's Apollo You can do a mulligan. Next one's Apollo 1. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that that's... I don't know, uh, illustrative of NASA embracing failures and realizing that failures make you stronger because like in general, you don't get better by winning. You get better every time someone kicks your ass. Yeah, exactly. So I feel like it, it almost derailed Apollo, but in a lot of ways, I think it kind of knocked it onto better tracks. Yeah, which learned all their lessons exactly. very quickly. Because then by the end of the decade on July 16th, 69, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong became the first humans to walk on the moon yeah. while Michael Collins orbited above, Aww. which... I've heard interviews with him and he's not, he's not like bitter about it or anything, <laughs> but still you got to imagine like when they were, when they were like leaving the module to go land on the moon, he's like, no, no, it's cool. 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 No, go, go, go ahead. Have fun. Have fun. Yeah. I'll be up here. Just I'll have just fun with it. down the fort. And then he comes back. They come back. How's the moon guys? How was, how was the moon? Yes. Oh, it was boring. Fine. Yeah. We walked around. Wasn't that? Wasn't big it deal. was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so today, NASA is going to be sending up robotic missions with the goal of setting up facilities for manned moon landings by 2024. So just 55 years later, we're going to be back. To the moon? To the moon. 
That's old news. Well, it's something. It's something. Because right now, anything outside of orbit is old news. That's true. Right. <laughs> um, 55 years later. Is the world better 55 years later than 69? I think so, for the most part. Uh, we've got nice little smart cell phones. phones. Smartphones. Yeah. I'm anyway, jury's out. Maybe that's a different disaster. <laughs> so another aspect of the show. So uh, we usually tell the disasters and we recommend music based on like the music that they make us listen to. So normally we'd play it in the background while we talk about it, but we realize that that might be a little bit of a logistic nightmare. So you got smartphones and Spotify probably, so you can follow along. <laughs> For me, because it was 1967 that, that, that this happened, I basically combed all the stuff that I listened to for things that were in the 60s. And the one that jumped out at me was Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield. Nice. Just because it makes me think of the 60s. It gives me a yeah, warm, sure. warm, fuzzy feeling. It's yeah. the kind of, kind of thing you might picture one of these guys listening to on the radio. They drive to work. Yeah. Although it came out in 69. Down. So. Well, maybe, maybe something similar. Maybe an early Dusty Springfield. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Dusty Springfield. This just makes me feel so good because this song is what I think the 60s sound like to me, having not been alive in the 60s. Yeah. You get that like low afternoon sun kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything's all right. Uh, and it makes Mellow. me think of Pulp, pulp Fiction. Which I always think of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. All right, so that was the Apollo 1 disaster. And that was a disaster. Good one. Yeah, it was a disaster. And yeah, that was a tragic Tuesday. Indeed. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to f- keep up with what we're doing, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at This Disaster Pod. You can check us out online, www.thisdisasterpod.com. And don't forget to check out our store where you can get uh, that print, the postcards, and some bonus content now. So give that a give that a click. Yeah. Click on click on that. Put that in your click and smoke it. <laughs> I got nothing else. Click that Lee, in your you can- mouse and... So we'll see you next week for our next major disaster. 